the reading of the scriptures uh, from Acts chapter 15, uh, reading verses 1 to verse 21. I invite your reverent uh, attention to uh, the public reading of God's word from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them, uh, to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agreed, Just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you uh, give any attention at all to the uh, uh, daily news, uh, you're aware of the fact that we're having a a fairly extended and perhaps even sometimes violent discussion in our country uh, on uh, equality. Uh, The church uh, 
does not need to have this discussion uh, because it's settled for us in the scripture. Uh, and it's settled for us uh, quite radically uh, in uh, the Council of Jerusalem, which uh, is our study this morning. It's a reminder that our unity was uh, created uh, by God, uh, a unity that uh, uh, encompasses uh, all of mankind, uh, ethnicities, uh, except for uh, a rejection of all other religions, all. None are accepted, save uh, faith in Christ. And again, it's the subject of the Council of Jerusalem, because here uh, the apostles established the total equality of all races in the church. That's why we don't need to have a demonstration uh, or have a violent discussion uh, in, in our church, because uh, unity has been established by God, created by God. so that uh, Gentiles are now accepted into the communion uh, along with other Jewish Christians. But the Gentiles are accepted minus the law. Uh, the law has been vacated. Uh, simply, Christ fulfilled it for us. So that in verses 1 to 5, the Jerusalem Council receives the report of uh, Paul and Barnabas and act on that report. Uh, the historic context, is, uh, you know, is the massive number of Gentiles that are coming to faith. Absent the law of Moses. And that's really the sticking point. Uh, they're coming to, uh, to know Christ. Uh, there are churches that are formed but it's uh, vacant, uh, the works of the law. And that unsettles some. And so the council meets. Uh, zealots have come to dispute with Paul and Barnabas. I remind you, in terms of theology, there are always disputes. Historically, you should study them. You should uh, know them, understand them. Uh, but there's always going to be disputes. Uh, their contention, the zealot contention, is that Gentile Christians must live like Jewish Christians. Must. To be accepted equally into the church, they must live like Jewish Christians, symbolized by circumcision. Uh, could be a figure of speech for all of the law, uh, minus the sacrificial portion. But nonetheless, they must be circumcised. Must be. Well, they cannot be accepted. So the church sends Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, the remaining apostles and elders, uh, to settle the issue. If you think about it, uh, and, and you should and you must, uh, it's settled here in Acts 15. Uh, but these controversies in the history of the church always erupt. Uh, one of my favorite is uh, the controversy between uh, Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine wins the argument in terms of the doctrine of salvation. Sadly, Pelagius is always being resurrected. Just the way it is in the life of the church. Particularly for American Christians, because we don't give much credence to historic theology. 
and, and that to our shame, and that to our danger. It just amazes me that semi-Pelagianism has a profound hold upon the life of many, many American churches. We have forgotten Augustine or Augustine and his soteriology. Again, you, you should not. Another great debate that occurred in the life of the church was uh, Luther and Erasmus. If you have never read Luther's Bondage of the Will, you, you are missing one of the great theological debates pitted between Luther and Erasmus. Luther, of course, wins. But Erasmus is ever-present in the life of the church. As I've suggested, mainly in the American church, because who studies church history? Why do we need to know historic theology? Well, this is why. Uh, to understand that the debates have been settled, that they quit resurrecting Erasmus and Pelagius. Occurs in the American church, uh, on and on. Uh, great arguments, theological arguments. And uh, sadly, more often than not, the American church uh, lets the defeated foe be resurrected. And so danger is always present in the life of the church. We forget our counsels. We must not forget uh, the counsel of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So on their way to Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas described the turning of uh, Gentiles to the faith with no reference to circumcision, no reference to law works. In other words, it is uh, uh, faith alone in Christ alone. Uh, their report, if, if you look at Acts 15 verse 4, uh, is uh, that God has taken the initiative and saved uh, Gentiles uh, based on His sovereign grace. Uh, again, look at, look at verse 4. And they reported all that had, God had done with them. Uh, the church is the work of God. Yeah. In, in uh, terms of justification, which is framed in this council, uh, there are no human works permitted at all. You do not add to what God has done. If you do, you do it to your incredible harm. Again, doctrine and justification, the only works that are acceptable are the works of Christ. I mean, I would remind you in a different venue, you're saved by works. Just not your works. It's His works. And His works alone. So that you don't add something to the doctrine of justification. Uh, so, what has God done? Well, the Council of Jerusalem uh, turns upon a Trinitarian argument of what the Spirit has done. And we'll look at that first in verses 6 to 12, and then uh, what uh, Christ has done uh, in saving. And uh, it's what they have done alone. Alone. Sadly, in the American church, we're always adding to that. The Roman Catholic Church, uh, we're adding the works of the church. Uh, you need the priest. Uh, uh, to uh, supplement their works as if Christ needs to be supplemented. Uh, in East, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, they don't have a doctrine of justification. It's incredible. I mean, that vacates a large portion of the Book of Romans, but 
They just simply do not have a doctrine of justification, and so they believe in faith and works. Uh, when it comes to the doctrine of justification, uh, it is faith alone. You add to it to your harm and, and destruction. And that's what's going to be settled in the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, in verses 6 to 12, the Gentiles' possession of the Spirit minus the law manifest their equality in the church with uh, the Jewish Christians. They have the Spirit. Absent circumcision. And so again, the zealots are going to say, well, they've got to be circumcised. Uh, Spirit needs a little bit of help. We've got to add to His works. Um, if the Spirit needs your help in salvation, uh, He's not God. And, and, and that's a pretty radical statement. Uh, he, uh, he acts alone uh, in, in the doctrine of justification. There's no participation in that doctrine. It's the Spirit alone. Uh, and so it's a great reminder that this is what is to be accepted in the life of the church, and uh, so the Jerusalem Council will decide. Uh, Peter speaks first. Uh, and uh, Peter uh, says in verse 7 that the Gentiles heard the gospel and believed. And that's all that's necessary. Faith alone. Faith absent works. Uh, this is God's only qualification. He has no other qualifier because He alone saves. The moment you begin to add qualifiers, uh, you are in a sense saying theologically that God's work alone is not sufficient. And that's a profoundly dangerous argument in the life of the church, to say that God's work is not sufficient in terms of justification. And so again, it's uh, faith alone. I mean, the Latin phrase is profoundly important, sola fide, faith alone. It's foundational uh, to the Protestant Reformation when the church rediscovered these doctrines. They didn't discover them. They'd always been present. The scriptural teaching is uh, radically uh, pointed to that. And again, the Council of Jerusalem is quite clear. The church just forgets it. Uh, part of our theology is we always want to add something. We always want to do something. When it comes to doctrine and justification, it's only the doing of God. And the moment you begin to do, uh, you begin to unravel the majestic work of God in justifying His people. Secondly, he recounts, uh, Peter recounts his encounter with, uh, with Cornelius in Acts 10. I mean, why don't we turn there uh, very quickly because it's part of Peter's argument. Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 43 to 35. Uh, Peter, speaking of, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him has received forgiveness of sin. Uh, by the way, that even includes Old Testament saints. Now, they weren't saved by justification, uh, pardon me, by circumcision either. They were justified in the same way you and I are. They believed in Jesus. You're saved in no other way than the work of Christ alone. That's the point. And so verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And all of the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the Gentiles also poured out upon the Gentiles 
absent circumcision, absent the works of the law, and they're amazed. But they're amazed in a positive sense. The Spirit of God has accepted the Gentiles based upon the work of Christ alone. So the Gentiles have the Spirit, and they haven't been circumcised. By the way, if you understand and have read the book of Romans, you you know that Abraham believed and was justified before he was circumcised. The great church father, if you will, Abraham, believed in Christ. If you will, became a Christian before he was circumcised. So God gave the Gentiles a spirit. Uh, the implicit parallel is God giving the Jewish Christian spirit in Acts 2. The point is, God is the giver. And His work is not to be supplemented. And you supplement it to your profound danger. Because the moment you begin to supplement the work of God in justification, uh, you interject radical confusion into the life of the church with regard to that doctrine. And that's a dangerous doctrine. I mean, I would remind you, if you will, in terms of the Protestant Reformation, the sole theological cause, if you will, vacant, uh, you know, the God's gift of grace was the doctrine of justification. It's almost profoundly centered upon this doctrine of justification by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Sums it up. You want to know about the process of Reformation? Doctrine of justification. So here, uh, God is the giver and He makes no distinction on the different ethnicities. No distinction whatsoever. I mean, that's what humans do. We begin to muck everything up. You begin to make distinctions in the work of God, uh, you, you immediately begin to corrupt the church. Uh, and that's a dangerous pro- uh, uh, product because uh, Christ creates the church. Uh, so they have the Spirit without the law. It's Christ plus nothing. Nothing. I would remind you again of a previous statement I made. You are saved by works. The works of Christ alone. Plus nothing. He doesn't need you to add or to supplement His work. Sole requirement is faith alone. Believe. So thirdly, God sovereignly cleansed the hearts of the Gentiles by faith absent the law. Absent the law. We are cleansed by the work of Christ. Uh, We are justified by the work of Christ. Even when we confess our sins, ladies and gentlemen, we're we're not confessing our sins to be cleansed. We've already been cleansed by the work of Christ alone. We confess our sins because He has cleansed us. Not that He would cleanse us, If that's our theology, we're being saved again and again and again because we're always sinning. But we are saved by the grace of God alone and by faith alone, in Christ alone, 
and that equation beggars anyone to add to it. You add to it to your profound danger. So Christ pays our penalty. His righteousness is imputed to us. And this is the sole, solitary, singular, meritorious cause of our acceptance by God the Father. The work of Christ alone. Uh, and, and it's uh, absent circumcision. Uh, Acts, uh, Acts 15.9 He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith, by faith alone. If you supplement that, then you're saying God needs a little bit of help. I need to cleanse my own, my own heart. Uh, he cleanses it part way, and I cleanse it the rest of the way. And guess what happens over the passage of time in the history of the church? Your act of cleansing becomes more important than His. And, and that is a radical heresy that must be rejected by the church, and it will be here in Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem. Based on the divine initiative. Let me give you a biblical reason as to why uh, we don't have to be circumcised. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. We are circumcised, of course, just not in the works of our hands. Colossians 2, verses 11-13. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So you were cut just not by your hands, by His sovereign work. Verse 12, Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Incredible expression of the grace of God. You are forgiven entirely, totally, completely, singularly, and powerfully in the work of Christ alone. And you had no part in it. Because you can't cleanse yourself. Dead men cannot cleanse themselves. The grace of God. The purity of the Gospel being accepted in the Council of Jerusalem. God help us to preserve it. Because to depart from it uh, is, is, uh, is ruinous to the life of the church. So Peter then tells the zealots, you're testing God by imposing a condition, verse 10, that He does not. But that's the way of man. Well, God did His part, but we have to do something, don't we? Not in, not in the doctrine of justification. You do nothing. You can't do. You must be done for. That's the essence of the Gospel. Uh, and so, Peter's warning the zealots that God can act freely and they should not dispute with Him. Uh, and, so, and so, he concludes in verse 11, we believe that uh, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way also as they are. And how were they saved? By grace alone, Christ alone, and by faith alone. And then Paul and Barnabas, so we shift from Peter to Paul and Barnabas, they confirmed their mission to the Gentiles was the same. The coming of the Spirit upon the Gentiles absent law works. 
So again, the Spirit and the work of the Spirit being gifted upon the Gentiles informs our ecclesiology or doctrine of the church. We accept people because they've been accepted by God, by God the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have no other conditions of acceptance other than the condition of the grace of God in Christ and by faith alone. Again, based upon the theology of the Trinity, the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And it's critical to the life of the church. I would remind you in your personal life as a Christian, be very careful about imposing other conditions. So that the people who like to hunt and fish, they make that a condition and they sit up here on the first row. Kind of vacant. Maybe maybe you haven't imposed that condition uh, to your... your, uh, a righteous understanding of the doctrine of justification. But we do that as humans. We begin to add conditions. We do it to our harm. Uh, our ecclesiology is based upon the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Alone is the operative word. I mean, I would remind you that everyone uses the words of grace and faith in Christ, but they leave off the adjective. And the moment you leave off the adjective, you totally redefine the noun. And so we add the adjective like the reformers added the adjective alone. Because the Bible, uh, if the church does the work of of, uh, systematic theology, the Bible confirms the radical importance of the adjective alone. Think of it in terms of your own life as a Christian in terms of praising God. Centered upon Christ alone. What a blessed reality that He forgave all of our sins. Past, present, and even future. We shift from the work of the uh, Spirit, uh, verses 13 to 21, to God's work uh, in, in the Son. Spirit the Son. So the Gentiles' coming is the prophetic fulfillment of the Messianic promises mandating their equality. And James now takes center stage. We move from Peter, Paul, and Barnabas now to James. And he affirms with Peter that God has indeed taken uh, from among Gentiles a people for His name. And this, he says, is prophetic fulfillment. I would remind you the book of Acts certainly is a historic narrative, but it is much more than that. It is prophetic fulfillment from beginning to end. You must understand that. Prophetic fulfillment. And the reference to the words of the prophets is all the messianic promises of the coming of the Gentiles. Verse 15. The prophets foretold it. Let me give you an illustration. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Isaiah says, now, it will come about in the last days. It will come about in the last days. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, will be erased above all the hills, and all the nations will stream into it. It's fulfilled in the coming of Gentiles. Streaming to Jesus Christ. And that's what's occurring in Acts. Isaiah 2.2, the last days. We're in the last days. They've begun in Jesus. 
inaugurated in his crucifixion. From the whole, James now goes to a particular text uh, with the introductory formula. If you look at uh, verse 16, uh, just as it is written. So he's going to rely on Scripture, the importance of the Scripture in the life of the church. The final authority in Grace Bible Church is Scripture alone. Lots of other authorities. Uh, you know, we might cite John Calvin or Martin Luther, but those are all secondary. The final authority is Scripture alone. I would remind you that the Roman Catholic Church rejects that view. It holds to Scripture, uh, the magisterium, in the traditions of the Father. So they have a three-legged stool of authority. We have one. Scripture alone. James is going to cite Scripture. In this case, the Septuagint or Septuagint of Amos 9, verses 11 to 12. Let's read verses 16 to 18. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it in order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by My name says the Lord who makes these things known from old. Biblical authority. If you will, the Latin phrase sola scriptura. Scripture alone is our authority. He's asserting biblical authority. Temporal reference in the context of Amos is to the end of judgment after captivity. God will act in restoration and return in Messiah. The tabernacle of David has a twofold meaning here. Uh, first, it's a restoration of the Davidic kingdom. Christ has ascended to the Davidic throne. He is king. And He's king forever. And He ascended based upon His work alone. No one helped Him in His resurrection. No one supplemented Him in His resurrection. He conquered death alone and ascended to the Davidic King. As Davidic King, pardon me. The coming of Christ fulfills the Davidic promise and covenant. Secondly, the tabernacle is now with us. The tabernacle speaks to the presence of God. God with us. In the captivity of Israel, He was not. Now He promises to come back. And this is fulfilled in Jesus. He has come back. The tabernacle of God with us has come back. God with us in Christ. Who is the end time cosmic tabernacle. He rebuilds and restores it. It's not a man-made temple. It's God in Jesus. You have your Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah 66.1. Documents this reality in a beautiful way. Isaiah 66.1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house that you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? It's a rhetorical question. There is no house you can build for God. He builds His own house. And He builds it in Jesus. I remind you, many American Christians, certainly very prominent in the state of Oklahoma, 
waiting for a time in which the temple will be rebuilt by human hands. It's incredible in light of Isaiah 66.1. Christ is the building. He's the end time tabernacle. Uh, this text, by the way, Isaiah 66.1 is quoted by Stephen in his passionate defense before the Sanhedrin. Because their hope is in a literal building. Our hope is in Christ. He's the building. His, his response uh, in verses 55 and 56 point to an inaugurated fulfillment. Uh, why don't we turn to Acts 7, verses 55 and 56. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Christ is the fulfillment. Stephen sees it. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And they're going to stone him. Uh, remind you of the text of uh, Hebrews 9.11. When Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. I read that text over and over, and I always say, how is it that people believe that our hope is in Israel and people are going to rebuild a temple. Our temple is not made by hands, ladies and gentlemen. It's made by God in Jesus Christ. That should be your hope. He's the end time temple. We're a part of it. In grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. So the Christ is the tabernacle. We are cleansed in Him and by Him. And by the way, in Him we are qualified to worship and to be His priests. If you're a Christian, you are a priest of God. Many American denominations, they have a special priesthood. I reject that. If you're a believer in Christ, you are a priest. Because He made you one. James then cites the outcome or purpose. Uh, Acts 15, 17. In order that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. So Messiah's rule as Davidic king includes Gentiles. And notice how he concludes, says the Lord. Biblical authority. So why do I reject Christ, grace, and faith? For Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone, because the Lord says so. Thus says the Lord. The divine imprimatur is now in Gentiles too. Their coming is a fulfillment, and there is no reference to the law. And so James concludes his argument in verse 19 do not trouble the Gentiles. And my, how we're troubled successively in church history. Uh, well, you need the priest to give you some works to do to get your sins forgiven. Uh, well, you need this and you need that. We're always adding to the work of Christ alone. And we do it to our utter ruin. What happens over time, in the process of a generational effect, is we don't even need Him. 
And so think about it. We have the Unitarian Church, or just God. That's all we need, it's just God. Incredible. But that's what happens over time when you begin to supplement the work of Christ as if He needs your help in salvation and in saving you and in forgiving you and washing you and cleansing you from all of your sins as if He needs your help. The moment you begin to supplement it with your works, you begin to confuse the entirety of grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Again, the central doctrine of the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church and, and uh, many Protestant denominations as well is faith plus works. Uh, yes, it's faith in Christ, uh, but you, you do your share of works because my how God needs your help. My friend, if he needs your help, he's not God. And if he needs your help, you're in a profound, dangerous position. The Council of Jerusalem clarifies our theology. Grace plus nothing. The Council obviates, very interesting, the Council obviates Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy in one fell swoop. And so, uh, the work of the Spirit, the work of Christ, the confession of Peter, Paul, and James. The matter is settled. The church does have a pronouncement out of concern for Jewish missions. They're concerned for Jewish missions, verses 20 to 21. James concludes with a reference to sensitivity to outreach to Jews. In the final verse, it encompasses what really is a universal essential throughout all time and in all churches. This should be a universal essential. Let's read verses 20 to 21. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he has read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So James is very wise here. He says, we need to be concerned about Jewish missions. And there's a universal essential in every church. And that is we not become idolaters. That's a condition they must continue to observe. The condition speaks to worship in Gentile pagan temples, which included cultic prostitution and idol feast with blood in fellowship with the demons of the temple. James is saying, it's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, but you have to leave the pagan temples. And he's exactly right. You cannot serve God in uh, uh, pagan gods. Gentiles do not need to be circumcised, but they cannot become idolaters. And by the way, neither can you. We live in a profoundly idolatrous culture. Be very careful about mixing your faith in God with idolatry. There's one God, and you cannot contaminate your heart by sharing affections 
between him with an idol. Give you a quick illustration. Had a neighbor, she's since uh, passed away, lived across the street from me. Uh, she painted her house green. Always scratching my head. Well, I love green. Perhaps you're wearing green. I, mean, I don't care what, you know, love green all you want. She paints her house green. Then she finally, she finally admitted it. She painted her house green because the dollar is green. Ooh, that's dangerous ground. I understand you need dollars. I understand you need to work for dollars. That has nothing to do with your justification. But she paints her house green because that was her God. Be very careful. Because uh, greed, idolatry is uh, profoundly present everywhere in our culture. Make sure you understand you cannot contaminate your heart by becoming greedy. By the way, uh, what James has just told us is there is no equality of religions. None whatsoever. None. Let me say that again. In our culture, we believe in a plurality of everything. You cannot do that in your faith. Christianity is not another religion. It is the only religion accepted by God the Father. Only. No equality whatsoever. I get all these invitations uh, from a, by the way, presumed Christian organization. Today we're going to go, uh, we're going to go visit the Muslim church, and we're going to go visit the Hindu church, and all these other. Why would I want to do that? I guess perhaps maybe historically to learn something. I don't need to learn anything because I'm not acceptable to God. They're not equal with the Christian faith. That's the Council of Jerusalem, ladies and gentlemen. It's Christ alone. Faith alone, grace alone. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness and what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial? But what is the believer in common with the unbeliever? But what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Note the rhetorical questions. No commonality whatsoever. You must reject idol temples. They're not equal. Uh, by the way, if you understand the theology of that in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is saying if you go to those places, you are communing with the demons behind them. And that's dangerous ground. No equality. Now, we have a spirit. It's a Holy Spirit. It's our guiding principle. Uh, but that's the life of the church. We're always mixing things, aren't we? Revelation 2.14, Jesus says, I have a few things against you because there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, Jesus is speaking to a church. They have corrupted his theology. He has a few things against them. Who kept teaching Balaam to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So already in the church, first century church, idolatry has come into it. 
They're committing acts of, idol of, of immorality, worshiping idols, and communing with the demonic forces behind them. False religion, ladies and gentlemen, is profoundly dangerous. Profoundly dangerous. We're the church of Jesus Christ alone. We accept none other because God doesn't accept any others. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone. So two arguments based upon the work of the Spirit and the work of the Son, uh, confession of the apostles, Peter, uh, Paul, and James. Um, I would remind you it's the monolithic belief of the, of the Reformed Church. Monolithic. The Reformed Church, though it's very different, there's Reformed Baptists and Reformed Episcopalians and Reformed uh, Presbyterians and others, perhaps. They are monolithic in holding these doctrines. You know why? It's a clear teaching of Scripture. It's a clear work of the grace of God. And we're one historically with the ancient church by God's grace. It is this that defines us. And the church accepts what God has done and vacates everything else. And may we do and continue likewise for the glory of God alone.